about those two resources. Um, one is the little book that's the resource of the month on the conscience um, by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, Kevin is a pastor down in North Carolina, used to be in Lansing actually, and uh, um, he is very, very helpful. Uh, I will read anything Kevin writes. He's very clear, very concise. Uh, he's an excellent writer. And so this little resource, um, we're recommending $2, um, so it's almost free, um, is just really uh, helpful on the conscience, I think. And so um, I would recommend uh, getting that if uh, you've ever had questions about the conscience and getting a clean conscience and, and all of that um, and what repentance looks like. Uh, very Kevin is always helpful. And then the other book, um, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, uh, I don't know how to recommend it any higher, <laughs> but if you've never read this book and you, you've never heard of Rosaria Butterfield, um, Rosaria was in the late 1990s um, a, a professor of English at Syracuse University in New York. Um, she was living as a lesbian and uh, was teaching in queer and gender studies and was very anti-Christian in many ways. Um, she wrote an article uh, against Promise Keepers um, and a local Presbyterian pastor in Syracuse read the article and wrote her a letter back very graciously and invited her over for dinner. And he and his wife sat and talked with her for several hours that evening and developed a friendship with her, and the book is the story of how she came to Christ and uh, what the Lord has done in her life since then. Um, it's amazing. I mean, it's just a, she's an English professor, so it reads fantastically well, and uh, it is a compelling story and super helpful in every way, um, even as we move forward uh, as, a, as a country dealing with LGBT issues and all of that and how to approach those things and what to do and not to do, um, super helpful resource. So it came out seven or eight years ago and I remember when it came out, um, Bethany and I heard about it and we got it on our Kindle and I can't remember who read it first, but she read it in like two or three days and I read it right after her in like two or three days. I mean, it's that good of a read. So, uh, so anyway, we have a few copies of that. If we run out, I will order more because I would love for everyone to read that book. It's so good and so helpful. Um, so let me put that out there for those two resources. Highly recommend both of them. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm loving our study in Exodus. So why don't you open up to Exodus chapter two? That's where we're going to be. And uh, we are going to attempt to cover the entire chapter this morning, which I know um, if you've been listening to me for any length of time will be a shock to you that we'll get through 25 verses. So um, Exodus chapter 2, though, is where we're going to be. A few years ago, uh, over in the United Kingdom, uh, Britain conducted a nationwide survey online, and they asked uh, Brits who, over the last 300 years has been the individual who's been the greatest military enemy that Britain has faced. So you may in your mind be sorting through who that could possibly be over the last 300 years. And it may come as a surprise to you that the person who overwhelmingly won that survey was none other than George Washington. Of course, it may not come as a surprise to you because we're Americans and we like George. He's kind of important to our whole national project, right? I mean, we did name our capital city after the guy, and there's a giant monument in our capital city that is named after him, and there are all sorts of schools and 
highways and everything else that are named after George Washington. And so I think you could make the case, and it would be a pretty sound case, that there is no single individual who is more important to the founding of America than George Washington. I mean, he's often called the father of our nation. So understanding that and the feeling you have as an American about George Washington and the place and the role that he plays in our national founding and in our country, the importance that he has, I want you to take that and now translate that over to the nation of Israel and you will get the person of Moses. I mean, you could probably make the case that other people are, are significant, Abraham, David, maybe Solomon, they're important in the nation of Israel, but no one is more significant to the founding of this nation and the, the place that this nation plays in the Old Testament other than Moses. He is a George Washington-like figure. If you think about it, it is through Moses that Israel is delivered from slavery out of Egypt. It's through Moses that the entire nation is brought safely through the Red Sea. Through Moses, they are given the law, which will guide them, keep them if they will obey it. It's through Moses that the tabernacle plans are delivered and the tabernacle is constructed under his leadership. It's through Moses and his prayers that the nation is delivered after their sin on the golden calf, with the golden calf at Mount Sinai. It's through Moses that ultimately the nation of Israel is brought to the edge of the promised land that God had, had, had promised to them. And so it's through Moses that all of these things happen. God's covenant is given to the people in the book of Exodus, and his presence, God's presence, is mediated through Moses to the people. I mean, he plays quite a significant role. He represents the people to God, and he represents God to the people. He's important. One author put it this way regarding Moses. The comprehensive role of Moses may be summed up by the designation mediator. You may, maybe you haven't thought of that before, but that's exactly the role that Moses plays in this book. He is the mediator. Now, in chapter 2, we're going to be introduced to Moses, the man Moses, the mediator, the deliverer, and the leader of Israel. And this whole chapter functions like an introduction to him. And one of the things you're going to notice throughout this introduction is that each of these stories that we're going to read look ahead to what Moses will do. It's fascinating, right? I mean, you're getting kind of all of the pieces here of who Moses will be in these stories from his early life. And they all anticipate what he will do and who he will be, and they look ahead. And some of these stories even foreshadow particular events that are going to happen in the life of Israel. In many ways, it's like the same things that happened to Moses eventually happen to the people of Israel. It's like he goes through it before they go through it. He foreshadows what's going to happen to the nation. And as these events unfold in this first chapter, you're going to be introduced to Moses and you're going to see him, that he is a great man, there's no doubt about it. And he's a great deliverer for Israel, but, and here's the key to this whole chapter, ultimately, Moses 
even this great man who does all these wonderful things for Israel can only do them based on God's strength and God's work. He needs God to work for things to go according to plan, for the mission to be accomplished that God has given him. He is dependent on God, just like the nation of Israel will be. And we'll see that dependence and that need throughout this chapter. And so here's what we're going to look at today. Three needs of the deliverer that show the needs of God's people. They, they foreshadow, they prefigure what's going to happen to the nation. So three needs of the deliverer that show the needs of God's people. And the first one of these you can see on the screen is that God's deliverer and ultimately God's people need God's protection. This is in verses 1 through 10. So if you were to start reading in chapter 2, you would have to keep in mind the events that close out chapter 1 to properly understand what happens in chapter 2. Look back to chapter 1 in verse 22. We went over this last week, but it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so there's this nationwide policy under the direct order of Pharaoh, the leader, the divine in their minds, leader of Egypt, that they were to find and dispose of any Hebrew boys that were born, any that they found. And this policy is intended to reduce the numbers of the Israelites because the Egyptians were beginning to fear them. They were multiplying and filling the land and spreading out. And so Pharaoh wanted to reduce them. And so he's going to reduce their opportunity for military power, military might, through killing the baby boys. And it's in that culture, that sort of thing is happening everywhere throughout the place where Israel is living in Egypt. That's happening. And it's into that culture and that public policy that the events of chapter 2 unfold. So look at verses 1 and 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine or a good child, she hid him three months. Now, you don't get the names of Moses' parents here. You can find them later on in Scripture. But these verses do tell us that Moses is clearly born in the tribe of Levi. And, of course, that's significant because the, the tribe of Levi would become, in, later in the book of Exodus, the priestly tribe, the tribe that mediates the presence of God to the people and mediates sacrifices back to God for the people. And so what this is telling us is that Moses is a fitting person for the role that he's going to play, a significant role as Israel's mediator. And as he establishes the priesthood and the tabernacle, it's fitting that he can do that as as a member of the tribe of Levi. Now, it's clear from these verses, it says that he was, his mother saw that he was a good child, and all that really means is that she loved him. She wanted him. She wanted to keep him. In the midst of this genocide of baby boys, his mother saw him and loved him and wanted to protect him. And so she did what she could and kept him in the house for three months, which is, you know, babies are sleeping a lot, not all the time, but they're sleeping a lot during those first three months. And so you can generally keep them at least somewhat quiet. Their cry is not quite as loud 
It's rather unique at that point. And so if you work at it, you can keep them quiet. You can rock them. You can feed them. You can do anything you can to try to minimize the noise that's happening during those first three months. But as he grew and stayed awake more and was louder, she knew that she had to have some sort of plan in order to keep him alive. Now, you have to understand that the Israelites lived in a certain section of Egypt, so they're not mixed in among the Egyptians. They lived in a portion of Egypt sort of to themselves. And this policy, no doubt, would have sent Egyptian soldiers in to patrol the land and to look for baby boys who were around. But... It's probably likely, it doesn't say it in the text, but it's probably likely that these patrols were not constant, that they were occasional. And it's probably likely that the Israelites knew they were coming. There was some warning, and word would get around quickly that a patrol of Egyptian soldiers was coming through. And so, if you were a Hebrew mother trying to keep your baby boy alive, then you had some warning, and you You had to have a plan in place to protect your child. And so when the patrol came through, you had to have something to do to hide your child to keep him alive. And that's what his mother does here. Look at verses 3 and 4. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, don't picture this as her sort of putting him out there and leaving him all night and all day. Chances are that she was doing this when a patrol was approaching in order to hide him. And so she made this little basket here and put him in the river, in the shallow part of the river amongst the reeds so he wouldn't float down the river. And the chances of a crocodile attack were less and his sister would stand there and watch him. And so she had the basket ready to go, and if there was any approach of danger, she would immediately take him out and do this, and his sister Miriam would keep watch. Now, it's important that you understand something about what happens in verse 3, and in particular about the word that is used here, a basket. That word, basket, is only used one other time in the entire Old Testament. And do you know what that word is? It's the word that is used of the thing that Noah built. It's the ark. It's the same word. And those are the only two times. In Genesis 6 through 9, that word is used 16 or 18 times, and it's used here. And I think there's no doubt that Moses, as he's writing the story of his birth, uses that word intentionally to draw a link between Noah and between him. Just as Noah was used by God to deliver humanity through the waters of judgment and into a new land, so Moses will be God's deliverer, used by God to bring God's people safely through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea and bring them into a new land as a new nation. And so this connection back to Noah, one of the things that this tells us is that even though we don't see God's name here, in the same way that God oversaw the construction of the ark and is the one who brought Noah safely through the flood, the same thing is happening here. 
God is behind the scenes working to protect Moses and to keep him, and he will bring him safely through the waters here and the peril that is happening all around him. God is overseeing all the events here, and that becomes quite obvious when something completely unexpected happens in verses 5 and 6. Look there. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. Now, having an Egyptian find Moses in this basket was the worst possible thing that could happen. And not only was this an Egyptian, but this was the daughter, one of the daughters of the very man who had put this policy in place to kill Hebrew children. But what happens is amazing. She comes down to bathe at the river, at the river probably for a religious worship experience to worship the God of the Nile. And while she's down there, look at the rest of verse 5, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity or had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So she sees him, she recognizes him as one of the Hebrew children, and there could have been a number of reasons why she recognized him as a Hebrew. No Egyptian would do this to their child to hide them like this. He probably had Israelite clothes on, but whatever the reason, she recognizes him and unbelievably has compassion on him. Clearly, God is overseeing this and protecting Moses in the midst of this. Now, things only go on to get more amazing from there and show us even further God's protection. Look at verse 7 all the way through verse 9. Then his sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Pretty quick thinking there by Moses' sister. Moses is kept alive. And let's be clear, Pharaoh's daughter was probably under no illusions that this wasn't Moses' mother. I mean, she was already able to nurse, and she assumed that this was probably his biological mother. But he's kept alive. He's allowed to be kept until, his, until he's weaned by his biological mother. And in this time... In ancient cultures, children were weaned at a much older age than they are now in the modern West. And so chances are that she was able to keep Moses and raise him till he was three or four years old. And when he's three or four years old, look at verse 10 and what happens. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses is kept alive, he's protected, God's sovereign hand is overseeing this whole time, this whole thing. He's kept by his own mother for several years, and then he's adopted into the royal family. I want you to notice in verse 10 that he's given a name by Pharaoh's daughter, and this name is quite important. In English, it reads as if Pharaoh's daughter is naming him because of how she found him, that she drew him out of the water. But in Hebrew, this is written in a different way. And in Hebrew, it's written, he will draw them out of the water. 
It's an active, and it's indicating something that is going to happen later in Moses' life. And what this is hinting at and looking forward to in a prophetic way is what God has in store for Moses, that he will draw Israel through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea and bring them safely to the other side. Overall, this entire section indicates to us that God is sovereign and he is protecting Moses, the future deliverer of his people. And that brings us to the second need of our deliverer here. He needs God's protection, as do the people of Israel, but he also needs God's direction, as do the people of Israel. This is in verses 11 through 22. So we talked a few minutes ago about George Washington And I'm sure most of you have heard the story or the legend of the cherry tree and George Washington. It's a very common myth about George Washington's childhood. And the story is that George Washington, when he was about six years old, took a hatchet and chopped down his father's cherry tree. And his father uh, saw that the tree was chopped down and confronted George about it. And George said something to the effect of, I cannot tell a lie. Yes, I chopped the cherry tree down. Well, that story probably never took place in his life, but it persists to this day. And children in school hear it regularly about the life of George Washington. And there's a reason why it persists. It's because it's something from his early life that sort of prefigures his character. And people like to tell it because it sets him up as this super honest man of integrity who will one day lead a new nation as a honest man of integrity. And so it foreshadows and prefigures what he's going to be like. And people love that sort of stuff. Well, that's what's going on here in this section of this chapter of, of, or in Exodus chapter two. Now we're not dealing with a myth here, we're dealing with events that really happened in the life of Moses. But if you think about it, in all of these early years in the life of Moses, as he is recounting and introducing himself to us as he's writing the Pentateuch, he decides to write these stories in this order. He chooses these events out of all of the other events that he could have written about. His life in Pharaoh's palace, his life as a married man in Midian, all of the things that happen, he chooses these stories. Why? Because these stories look ahead and show us what sort of a man he will be. And they show us that even as he is God's deliverer, that he can't act on his own wisdom and according to his own plans, that he will need God's leadership and God's direction if he's going to do what God wants him to do. You'll see in these stories that Moses is a man who wants to deliver oppressed people. He empathizes with them. He sees them in their need and he acts on that. But he's going to have to do it according to God's calling which we'll get to in chapter 3, and according to God's direction. Now, of course, Moses had been raised as an Egyptian. And even though he had lived in Pharaoh's palace under Pharaoh's daughter, he still understands where he came from. And he still identifies with his native people, with the Israelites, with his enslaved brothers. Look at verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people 
and looked on their burdens. And that, that word burdens takes us back to chapter 1 where it describes the afflictions of the people of Israel that, that Pharaoh was instituting. And so Moses sees that and understands that they are being unjustly afflicted and burdened. The rest of verse 11, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and again, one of his people. He's drawing attention to the fact that at this point, Moses clearly identifies himself as an Israelite, and these enslaved people are his people. And he sees their bitter affliction, and he wants to help. But unfortunately, he doesn't exactly help in the right way. He's going to go it alone here and try to figure it out on his own. Look at verses 12 through 15. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Again, he's trying to help. He's trying to deliver. He's trying to intervene, right? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, when you read about these Israelites here responding to Moses, it makes sense that they would be concerned about what had happened, and they would blame him. I mean, if an Egyptian taskmaster or overseer shows up dead and someone discovers him in the sand, you would have to assume it was not another Egyptian. It was an Israelite. And then if you're a Hebrew slave, you're assuming that you are going to suffer the wrath of Pharaoh and the other taskmasters because of what has happened. And so they are rightly frustrated with what Moses has done here. Ultimately, after a bit of investigation, I'm sure, Pharaoh finds out, goes after Moses, and Moses is forced to flee from Egypt because of what he's done. He heads toward Midian, which is pretty much in the desert, out of the way, a backwards area, and I'm sure he assumed that he could hide out safely there. He won't be found. And that transition to Midian brings us to our second story in this part here, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. So we saw Moses end up at a well, and we see these seven daughters here shepherding their father's flocks, and they end up at the well too, and that makes sense. I mean, there are a lot of stories of people meeting at wells in Scripture, right? It's kind of a thing in the Bible. And it's kind of a thing because if you're in a dry desert area like this, a well is an important reality for you. You have to have one. You have to go there daily. And so this would have been a meeting place and a, probably a cultural place as well where people ended up and they talked. It was, a, it was a busy spot. So at this particular well, Moses finds these seven daughters, these seven sisters who are trying to water their father's flock and they end up getting shoved around and forced away from the well by some local shepherds. And notice what Moses does again. He tries to intervene. Verse 17, the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Now when it says here that Moses saved them, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but this word is only used one other time in the book of Exodus. 
And it's used at the end of Exodus 14, which is the Red Sea passage, and it describes God saving or delivering the nation of Israel through the Red Sea, bringing them safely to the other side. And so Moses here, this is foreshadowing his involvement in that and showing us that his character, who he is, is someone who wants to deliver and wants to help. Now, I want you to notice here in this story, the story of of him in Egypt and then the story of him in Midian, I want you to notice a contrast here that I think is helpful. In the story in Egypt, he is clearly identifying with the Israelites. He sees himself as an Israelite, and that's why he has to flee away, because he kills an Egyptian. He's identifying with their affliction. How is he identified in this story by the Midianite sisters? Look at verse 18. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And so here, because of his dress, maybe because of his speech, he is identified as an Egyptian, an Israelite in one passage, an Egyptian in another, and now he's in a foreign land. And so at this point in his life, and this is important, his sense of identity and his knowledge of who he is is shaken and skewed, and he is all over the map. He certainly feels out of place here. And you know he feels out of place because of what happens in verses 21 and 22. Look there. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. Why? For he said, I have been a sojourner or an alien in a foreign land. He feels so out of place and so confused about who he is and what he's going to do in life that he names his son this in order to identify his status as a resident alien, as a foreigner, as an exile. Moses has been pushed out of the land that he knows, pushed away from the people that he identifies with, and now he's in a foreign land as an exile. Does that sound like any other group of people in the book of Exodus? I mean, that's exactly what happens to the nation of Israel. They are in a foreign land as exiles and will need to be brought to the land that God has promised them. One author summarized this well, and I I love this. It's a little small, but I'll read it to you. From Moses' point of view, He was now permanently separated both from what he regarded as his homeland, Egypt, and also from the people he now identified with as his own, Israel. Consider then the spiritual challenge that was his. He was a failure as a deliverer of his people, a failure as a citizen of Egypt, unwelcome among either of the nations he might have called his own, a wanted man, a now permanent resident of an obscure place, alone, and far from his origins, and among people of a different religion. His character, as we have seen, was clearly that of a deliverer. His circumstances, however, offer no support for any calling appropriate to that character. 
it would surely require an amazing supernatural action of a sovereign God for this washed up exile to play any role in Israel's future. And that's exactly what happens in chapter three, and we'll get there next week. But at this point, he is a man in need of both God's protection and he's clearly in need of God's direction. He is in exile in a foreign land. Things have not gone according to plan. He identifies with his people and wants to deliver them, but has no idea how to accomplish that, and it ends up with him all the way out in Midian. And so he needs God's protection and God's direction, but the culmination of this passage and the thing that he needs the most and that Israel needs the most is found in verses 23 to 25. They need God's faithfulness, desperately. God's faithfulness in verses 23 through 25. So in chapter 1, you're introduced to Israel's suffering, their affliction in Egypt. Chapter 2, we're introduced to God's deliverer, to Moses, to who he will be, to what he's like. A man who will mediate God's presence for Israel, but a man who is also in need of God himself. Now, these last few verses of chapter 2 bring this introduction of the book to a close. They bring it to a a climax, and they highlight what is Israel's greatest need as well as Moses' greatest need. And what do they need? They need God to act on the basis of his covenant faithfulness. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And so their cry comes up to God, and God acts. And this is a beautiful passage that is written here. Look at verses 24 and 25, and notice as I read this that there are four verbs given here, four actions that are taken, and notice that over and over again in each of those four actions that God is the subject of those actions. And look how it describes God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw people of Israel, and God knew. God is the subject. He is the one who will act and will deliver. He heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. And at the heart of these verses is the covenant that God had made with the patriarchs in Genesis. I mean, if you've been with us these first couple weeks, you know that Exodus is the continuation of the story of Genesis. Back in Genesis, God promised Abraham that he would make a great nation of his descendants, that he would give his descendants a good land to live in, and that through his descendants, he would bless all the nations of the earth. Then he promised, as he was cutting a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he specifically promised that Abraham's descendants would end up in a foreign land and that he would deliver them. Exodus 15, or Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But... 
I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Then, after these promises to Abraham, God reaffirms them over and over again throughout the book of Genesis. He reaffirms them to Isaac and to Jacob and to Jacob's sons. And so God's promises are always valid. They don't fade away. They continue. He never goes back on them. He doesn't recant them. He never forgets them. The point here is that Moses and Israel needed God to be faithful to his promises. They needed him to come through on what he promised. And here's the kicker. They could trust him to do that. They could absolutely trust him to come through. Now, for you and I, the lessons here, I think, are multifaceted. And I think this is the overall point of this whole passage. Are you suffering today, this week? I mean, it has been quite a year, right? A lot has gone on. If that is true of you, I would say turn your attention to these four verbs. God hears your cry for help. God remembers the covenant that he has with you in Christ sealed with the blood of Christ. He sees you in your pain, and he knows you. He, the God of the universe, the sovereign king over all, knows you as an individual. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. But I think what's challenging here is that God doesn't always if ever, act when we want him to, right? I mean, 400 years? The first people that were enslaved in Egypt were like, come on, and it continues, and it continues, and it continues. And so often, it seems as if God doesn't hear, and if he doesn't see, and if he's not faithful to his covenant, and he's sort of disconnected, and he's distant. We don't hear from him. Sometimes it seems like he is a father who has forgotten his children. But this passage tells us that he hasn't. And he never will. Even if it's not on our timetable, he is there and he sees and he knows. And so what I can tell you this morning is, with whatever you're going through, whatever suffering it is, based on the authority of Scripture and the character of God and his faithfulness, God has not overlooked your affliction. He hasn't forgotten about you. He sees you in your suffering and your difficulty. And just as he is in this passage, he is working. And he's working in the background. And he's always doing a billion things in any one thing. His ways are so high above our ways that we can't even understand it. But he's there and he's orchestrating events just like he was with Moses here. Israel is groaning for help and slowly and carefully God is protecting and directing this deliverer to bring him to a point where he can execute God's plan and deliver his people. And it all is going to happen in God's timing. And it's going to happen for Israel's good and for God's ultimate glory. And so I would, I would end today just by saying our greatest need 
is the same as Israel's and the same as Moses. To trust God, to bank on his faithfulness, even when we can't see, can't hear, and he seems distant and absent. He's not. He sees, he remembers, he knows, and he hears you. Trust in that. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you are a God who acts on our behalf. We have to admit that at times we feel as if you are distant. But Father, reorient our our perspective with this passage. Help us to know that you, you are present. You are right here. You are intimately aware of what is happening and you are working in the background. You are changing circumstances. You are overseeing the tiniest events of a baby in a basket, the Nile River, and changing the course of empires and nations through that, Lord. And you are impacting the lives of ordinary people like us. And you are shaping events for our good and for your glory. And so help us to trust you in the midst of that. And we thank you that we can. It's in Christ's name we pray.